You're listening to Halford and Bruff. What a win. Mum and Dad, it's hugs all round. Milos Ryanich on Canadian soil. Back here playing in Toronto for the first time since 2018. And third, as Cavan gets into one, this is well hit. This is deep. This is gone. What is going on? Welcome to another week here of Halford and Bruff on Sportsnet 650. Still no Halford, still no Bruff. I'm back. I'm Jamie Dodd, joined now by my guy Randeep Janda, finally coming in to do some work this summer after gallivanting across the province. You're back. I am back for one week. For one One week. Four days. Not even a full week. Not even a full week. I made sure to put that in my contract, four-day work weeks in the off-season, but it's good to be back. And hey, listen, I'm working, and it's also early morning, which yes. is always nice. Jamie, always good to host with you. Sure. Today. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about the early morning part. Not great, but you know, whatever. You, we'll make it work. I'm heading to Europe next week, it so hit, this is perfect uh, for my fair. time frame, actually. It hits different yep. after a three-day weekend. Because I on last Friday, I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm adjusting. I felt really fresh in the morning. I woke up like slightly before my alarm, which was great. And then this morning, it's after three days of not being on the schedule. It's completely gone. And I feel terrible. Well, yeah, this it's morning. a long weekend, right? It's completely gone. You're enjoying so. yourself. I enjoyed the long weekend, but uh, yeah, today, this morning, was tough. Uh, A-Dog is back after taking last week off. Hello. What's going on, man? Um, but Laddie is now gone. The dogs, like yes. like two dogs passing in the night. Yeah. <laughs> not together. <laughs> Laddie is lost. I like that. Very yeah. nice. Just got a, yeah, there's mo- a, ri- a mournful howl. The there's moon. a rift between us, so they're separating us right now. That's the rumor there's I'm going to start. There's a rift. They yeah. got to keep you guys away. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You're fighting over uh, royalties for the jingles. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pretty sure it's 6048, uh, but we're working on it. <laughs> uh, in Laddie's stead, our guy Ben Bazarin is in uh, running things from the control room. Big show this week. I mean, I will say, or today, I should say, one of the nice things about a three-day weekend is um, lots of stuff happens over the over the weekend that we can talk about. Before we get to that, Halford & Bruff brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Visit your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit. At Kintech.net, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line, of course. Never too early to get your What We Learn submissions in. We will read yours coming up at 8.30. Adnan Verk at 7 of the MLB Network. Uh, Greg Wyshynski at 7.30 of ESPN to talk hockey. Mike Tanier, NFL writer for The Messenger, will join us at 8. Before we get to any of that, though, uh, let's talk about what happened. Hey, did you guys see the game last night? No. What happened? I missed all the action because I was... How busy your life can be. What happened? You missed that? You missed that? What happened? So we'll start with uh, not a not a sporting event per se, but big news from the NHL. The San Jose Sharks trade Eric Carlson, the reigning Norris winner, to the Pittsburgh 
Penguins. Three-way deal, Montreal involved as well. The Penguins get Carlson, a couple of other minor players, a, a third-round draft pick as well. Uh, the Sharks get Pittsburgh's 2024 first-round draft pick, which is top 10 protected. Michael Granlund, Mike Hoffman from the Habs, and Yan Ruda, also from the Penguins. Yeah, boy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Hey, we'll see. We'll see what happens with Yan Ruda. Um, and the Habs get uh, – uh, a draft pick from Pittsburgh, plus Jeff Petrie back to Montreal. And uh, Casey DeSmith also going to Montreal. Uh, San Jose only retaining $1.5 million of Carlson's salary. Pittsburgh retaining 25% of Petrie's salary, which is basically the same number. Uh, roughly $1.5 million in each direction there. So the, we'll, we'll talk more about this throughout the course of the show. There's a lot of different ways to take this one and what it means for Pittsburgh, what it means for San Jose. You know, was this the right move? Are they, Is it correct for Pittsburgh to be aggressive at this stage uh, of the team-building process and where they are? I got to say, though, it's a neat trick to acquire Eric Carlson and yet somehow also get cheaper. They're, they have less money committed on the books for this year uh, than they did before the weekend. So just in the, from that perspective – uh, impressive work by the Pittsburgh Penguins. Yeah, this trade is one of those that you could probably talk about a lot, right? Based oh, yeah. on the implications for every single team. But to your point, Pittsburgh freed up $3 million in cap space. Mm -hmm. They got the reigning Norris Trophy winner, and they got younger at the same yeah. time, which is kind of baffling because Eric Carlson's not young anymore, but no, they no. moved off of Pete. Neither, neither are any of the guys they moved. No, for sure, right? And, and that's one of the things where you look at this, and I really like this deal for Pittsburgh. You get a, a great player, but Jamie, they didn't have to pay very much to get no. a 101-point player last season. And whether the fit works or not, or whether they end up winning a Stanley Cup or not, are they better with Eric Carlson? The answer is yes. 100% they are. Of course are. they are. And their cap situation is healthier, and they didn't give up much of anything. No, they didn't give up anything they're going to miss for the next couple of years, right? And really, I mean, that's been the the problem in Pittsburgh has been they haven't been zeroed in on what, on what the priorities should be, right? When Rutherford was there, everyone knew what the priority was. It was, we're going all in all the time. And they got two Stanley Cups out of Trader it. Trader Jim, that's why he was Trader Jim. And that was the correct way to go about it, right? Not just the trades, but the fact that he was always willing to move their first-round pick. When Hextall came in, he was either wanted to or was tasked with a much more patient, trying to be more forward-thinking, future-thinking point of view. And that's kind of got them in this muddle where they are now, where they didn't really make any bold moves, and they w they ended up wasting a couple of years of Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin's career, who, by the way, are still really good players, especially Crosby. He is elite. Malkin had a fantastic season, and when he's healthy, he's still very good. I've never understood the rush to move past this era of Penguins hockey, and I think it's absolutely the right call that Dubas is looking at and saying, you know what, I'm not really concerned with that last year of Eric Carlson's deal. I want to see what more I can get out of these guys right now while they are still really good players. So I think this ended up being uh, a no-brainer for Pittsburgh, ultimately. We'll see if this deal pans out for the team because, as you mentioned, you've got a special player, one of the all-time greats in Sidney Crosby, yeah. uh, one of the most dominant players in the playoffs we've ever seen with Geno Malkin in 2009, 36 points. Should have been an NHL 100 player. Still can't believe he wasn't mm -hmm. a few years back. But they did need another threat. They needed somebody that could pick up the slack when maybe Geno Malkin was not being consistent or when he was injured. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a forward. In this case, 
We've seen Eric Carlson. We've seen what he can do. He can activate like a forward. He can be that yep. fourth forward and essentially be the second or third option on a team. And this also helps out Chris Letang just to kind of lay back a little bit. He doesn't have to be the guy that is eating so many minutes. He doesn't have to run power play one. Mm-hmm. He also had his own health trouble last year as well. So it kind of maybe gives them a little bit more of an option to say, hey, we've got a difference maker on the back end. And Latang can maybe play within a role that as he's aging, he can transition into that second pair role. So I like this. And this is a move that is perfect for the Pittsburgh Penguins. But it's also something that Kyle Dubas needs to send a message. Remember, he's coming from Toronto where he wasn't able to do the job. Yeah. Right? Like, they won a playoff round, but I don't think... If that would have been, you know, there's Stanley Cup. Did that Cup, satisfy people? No, 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 it did not. So he's got a lot to prove here too. So the timeline for both of these teams, or both of these, the team and the GM, actually works together well because he's got a lot to prove. I like this aggressive move. It's going to be something that will give us drama in that metropolitan yep. division to watch throughout the year. And there's risk, of course, but they had to accept that risk to get the potential upside, right? Like that—that's ultimately what they was. There going to be another player on the market who could raise their ceiling as much as Eric Carlson does. No. And there isn't, especially not for the relatively cheap acquisition cost that they paid to get him. And that's, to me, what it comes down to, is they needed to find a way to juice the talent level to raise the ceiling of that team, and they did it by getting Eric Carlson. Look, I think there are there's going to be fair questions about the fit there, as you mentioned, with Chris Letang already in place. But Eric Carlson can help reduce his load significantly and maybe get more efficient minutes out of him. I do think, look, we all know Eric Carlson is not a shutdown defenseman, but I, I think Eric Carlson is more than smart enough and more than talented enough to adjust his game and play a slightly different style than he was in San Jose last year. In San Jose last year, that was like as most, as extreme an all offensive focus a defenseman can have, right? That was basically what the, their season was about, was get Eric Carlson to 100 points, and that's how he played. And the d- defense wasn't pretty. I think on a competitive team, on a team with Sidney Crosby and Geno Malkin in place, on a team with, you know, maybe you don't buy them as Stanley Cup contenders, but that's going to be a team with legit Stanley Cup aspirations. I think, I'm not saying he's going to be, you know, vintage Chris Pronger all of a sudden, but I think he is going to, I'm not expecting Eric Carlson having a problem recommitting to the defensive side a little bit. I think one thing we also have to keep in mind of is that the other key additions this offseason, right? Ryan Graves helps them out defensively. You've got in the forward group as well, Lars Eller and Nola Chari. Like, these guys are picked up for yep. team defense. They're not picked up specifically, you know, for depth scoring. If they can provide that, that's great. But you're not looking at Lars Eller and Nola Chari for that. You're looking to be a tougher team to play against. So where Eric Carlson maybe can't do it to that level, they have made moves that make them a difficult team to play against from a defensive perspective. Yeah, it's... Um, uh- we will look a little bit more about Pittsburgh where they stack up later in the show. But again, I think I'm not saying there isn't risk and people are texting in like, Oh, they could fall off a cliff. Yeah, that's true. But when you have Crosby and Malkin and Latang still playing at the level they're at, and by the way, on bargain salaries relative to what they're, what what they're capable of doing on the ice. I think that's something that people forget. It would be malpractice not to go, uh, all in, not to keep pushing and trying to contend, and that's exactly what Kyle Dubas and the Pens did here. Uh, quickly, one other transaction uh, of note in the NHL: Matt Dumba, uh, one of the biggest names, probably the biggest name still out there on the UFA market, signs with the Coyotes of all teams. One-year deal, probably a bit of a, 
a chance to go play some major minutes, try to rebuild his value, get back on the open market next year. It does remind me a little bit of the John Klingberg to Anaheim <laughs> decision well, last Matt year. Matt doesn't hope. <laughs> I know, but, you know, veteran defenseman yep. going to a situation where he's going to be asked to play a lot and the surrounding talent isn't all that impressive. And I hope for Dumba's sake that it works out better for him than it did for Klingberg in Anaheim last year, which was a disaster. Good for Dumba for finding a home, but, you know, I've seen some people making – oh, could. Could Arizona be a, a dark horse playoff contender next year? And there's still such a, a lack of talent up and down that roster. I'm not buying it. They're better than they were last year if you look at the talent. I know what you mean. Like, the, the depth is not there. You've got J.J. Moser playing maybe first pairing minutes, yep. potentially. Like, it's not a good situation. But at the same time, you start looking at some of the acquisitions they picked up, right? NHL-level acquisitions. You look at... Uh, you got Kerfoot back there. You've got Sean Dursey via trade. You've got players that they didn't have last year. They've got a little bit more versatility in their lineup. They are improved. The question I have is, last year they were kind of in that middle between Chicago and Nashville and St. Louis. Mm -hmm. Are they closer to being at least in the discussion for a wild card spot coming out of the Central? I'm not saying they're going to win it, but are they in that group that's going to be competing for it? With these veteran pickups, if they work out, and that's the big if, if they work out, I do feel like they're better than last year. So I'm not saying they're a playoff team. I'm not drunk like the most of the people on Twitter that are saying that. <laughs> I think they're better suited. And for every Klingberg discussion, remember, Shane Gossespierre was very much of the same way when he was moved out to Arizona. It was a guy that had fallen off yep. in Philly. He actually went to Arizona, played pretty well. So there is a bit of a blueprint in Arizona where you can go reset your value and get moved on to play somewhere else. Uh, Dumba might play along the same way, but I look at this team and I say they're better, but are they a playoff team? No, I, I just I don't think they're. A I just team. still look at the the key positions on a roster, right? And you look at the blue line. There's no there's there's no legit first pairing defenseman, right? There just isn't. I don't even mean a number one, just a one or a two on that blue line. And even the guys that, you know, like Matt Dumba is probably a number four at this stage in his career, ideally. Or like maybe even on a good team, he's he's slotting in in that kind of Tyler Myers third pairing role. You know, Sean Dursey, I like, but more of a number four type of guy. Like yep. there's a there's a such a clear lack of talent on the blue line. And I think back to the years here in Vancouver when it was Good Branson and Pouliot and Delzato. And just when you don't have legit top four guys on your back end it can sink your team in a hurry. And then even up front at center, you know, I like Logan Cooley. I think he's going to be really good, but he's still a very young player coming in as a rookie, potentially playing center. It's hard for those guys to really move the needle that much. So, and then, you know, it's, it's Nick Schmaltz. Who's not exactly a two way guy at the, the most important positions are also way where they have the most question marks. I think that's going to hold them back. You're essentially looking at Clayton Keller and Logan Cooley to, drive yeah. play in your top two lines which is going to be a, and, a huge ask and Clayton for. Keller is really good yeah no he can do he it. he can do it I don't know Cooley it's a big ask exactly and you know are they in that discussion though outside of Chicago like I don't see them being I think Chicago will be better I think they'll probably yeah. be a 70 point team this year not a 59 point team Arizona's probably good for be, them hey that's a win that's a win <laughs> Arizona's maybe a 75 to 80 point team. Yeah. And they might be in that kind of Nashville, St. Louis range, but that says more about Nashville and St. Louis to me than it does about Arizona improving. How dare you? How dare you? 
<laughs> Discredit the team that now has Luke Shen and now the National Predators. <laughs> uh, all right, more hockey talk as the show continues. Uh, on the diamond, the Jays and the Mariners, both red hot right now. Jays get a sweep on the weekend uh, against Boston and then win last night uh, in Cleveland as well. The Mariners swept the Angels. So the race for the final wildcard spot right now, and there's still a long way to go, but it's looking like it actually could come down uh, potentially to the Jays and the Mariners. Right now the Jays three games up on Seattle, but again, Seattle 8-2 and two in their last 10. The Red Sox five games back of the Jays. Uh, your Yankees, Randy, last I checked in last place. Yeah, in the AL East. I haven't been on the air in a long time. I'm willing to he, admit it's. Who uh, do you think would win in a race? You or Giancarlo Stanton? <laughs> me. And that's not a ringing endorsement of me. Trust me. You see that effort he was putting in? Can we oh, can man. we make this happen somehow? Like who do we t- who do we talk to to get this to be a thing? I'll call Hal Stry- uh, Steinbrenner right I don't know. now. I, I wonder if that got I wonder if that got any play on New York radio. I want Aaron Boone as my Schrade's partner though. What? I want Aaron Boone as my Schrade's partner. Let's get Don LaGreca on the line to see if they were talking about <laughs> Giancarlo Stanton casually jogging into home plate. Uh, the real the real uh, talking boy here, though, is uh, Jay's call-up, Davis Schneider. Apparently the second coming of Babe Ruth. The, 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 literally, and this is not Jay's fan hyperbole here, but arguably the best debut series in Major League Baseball history from Davis Schneider. What he did against Boston, first of all, hitting a home run in his first at-bat over the Green Monster, which is incredible. That That's just fantastic. He was on base like every time he got up. He hit another home run later in the game. I mean, I, we talked to Shai Davidi on Friday, and he very reasonably was saying, look, temper your expectations, guys. Don't expect him to come in and, and spark the team and, you know, r- turn the offense around. That's exactly what he did against the Red Sox. It was, it was Can't wild. Can't lose with okay. David Schneider in the question, lineup. Honest question. Did you even know this guy existed prior to his call? I did, but not prior to this year. Okay. He, he's been someone who's been on – he really burst on the radar this year because he was mashing at AAA. And as the Jays struggled, fans started to say, well, hold on. Like, these guys aren't hitting. We've got this guy who's mashing at AAA. Like, when when are we going to see him? And so there was a little bit of anticipation for that reason. But he wasn't a hyped prospect by any stretch. It's not like people came into the year thinking, oh, David Schneider. Wait till he gets yeah, up here. No, yeah. no, no, no. Not even close. So I'm not going to lie. Prior to this year, I had no idea who this guy was. Like, yeah. I, I had I did not know he existed. And – the what he was able to do against Boston, a is incredible on its own, but it was much needed too, right? You have oh, the Bogusette yeah. injury, you yeah. have other injuries throughout the lineup as well. Remember, uh, well, this, and just uh, underperformance is the big for thing. sure. Uh, remember, George Springer's streak, yep. just over recently, and not the good streak. It was a, it was a o for what thirty four, if I'm not mistaken, something like that. Something like that. So to have this guy come through the lineup, have that series in Boston, which the Red Sox are in a bad way right now all of a sudden, too. That's huge. Big divisional opponent. And the injuries are key, right? You have adversity in your lineup. How do you get Ws, and how do you make sure that you're still in control of your own destiny? That's a big moment. So well, Schneider coming up and just giving them that it's boost. It's massive. And that uh, that series in particular, because they were coming off a, a really tough, dispiriting series loss against the Orioles. And so they needed to get back on track, and they did it in a big way against Boston. I I mentioned uh, Seattle swept the Angels. And, I mean, first of all, kudos to Seattle for playing well right now and staying in this race. The Angels, in the most – this is like the most Angels thing possible. They make the big statement, and I applauded them for it, and I still do. 
they didn't give up on the Shohei Otani era. They wanted to make something happen. They wanted to show that they're serious about winning and try to convince him to sign there in the winter. They go all in. They've lost seven in a row since going all in, and they are now eight games back of the final wild card spot. Like, has a team ever fell flat on their face faster after this big, exciting trade deadline than the Angels have right now, getting swept by a divisional and wild card rival in the Seattle Mariners? Like, if I'm Shohei Otani, you make this big, grand effort. Look, we're serious about winning. We're serious, Shohei. It's like, oh, we just lost seven in a row. It's like, well, I'm definitely not signing here. Yeah, These this guys is, can't do anything right. This is the definition of when keeping it real goes wrong. Like, essentially, you double down. You have the rallying cry. You're ready for battle. And what happens? Like, your sword falls, and then you get <laughs> Like, you're done. Like, you trip. That's what's happened here with the Angels. And now, if I'm Shohei Otani, you're, you're surveying the field. Like during in season, at least if you yeah. traded him, and I was always of the opinion that you got to trade him because I understand you feel like you have a chance, but come on, man! Everybody knows the Dodgers, the Yankees—they're coming to play. Like yeah. they're coming to play, and now Seattle maybe Seattle I mean, potentially could. We'll do. see. I, we hear he loves it. I, you sure. never know. Maybe he likes Pike Place, <laughs> the original <laughs> Starbucks. Loves Pike Place, big Pike it's Place like that, guy. Yeah. <laughs> The mac and cheese place next to the, the original, original Starbucks, yeah. <laughs> the original Big fan Starbucks. of that, yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine in the press conference after he signs, Shohei, why, why Seattle? I just love the original Starbucks. I love waiting in line. I love waiting in line. 25 minutes. Taking a selfie up there. It's fantastic stuff, really. No, that's that's brutal, man. Oh, that's it's brutal. so bad. It, it, it's one of those things that you're looking at and saying, okay, can we, if I had a time machine and I'm I'm the GM of that team, yeah, i do this very, very differently. Uh, the other interesting note from Major League Baseball over the weekend was one of the most entertaining brawls and most I don't know what the word is, violent, I guess, really, but like most actual like a fight brawl you'll ever see in Major League Baseball where uh, Tim Anderson of the White Sox challenges Jose Ramirez to a fight at second base after Ramirez was upset about a tag that Tim Anderson put on him. And the umpire, uh, maybe he's been watching hockey replays or something, I don't know, but he just said, yeah, all right, you guys, you know, he saw Tim Anderson squaring up and the umpire just kind of faded into the background and said, I'm going to see what happens here. Tim Anderson starts swinging at Jose Ramirez. It does not go well for Tim Anderson. He gets, like, not just a little knocked out, like, really knocked out to where he has the jelly legs and he's being helped off the field by his teammates after. Yeah, the it's a way, tough look. The way he lands is like, you know, when you are you take a punch and it looks like you're about to seat yourself in a chair, but no, you fall rear end first. Like, that was, yeah. that was a clean knockout. The most graceful thing about that entire thing was the referee or the umpire. The umpire. Yeah. I was going to oh, say no, referee. He was, he was like he was like a he, linesman. He, he was, was auditioning to be a linesman. He was like a he was like a boxing referee. He just kind of was was in the background a little bit. But Tim Anderson, I think most major league baseball players would be okay with the guy getting knocked out. Yeah, being Tim Anderson, he's not yeah. all that well received in baseball. Um, but more than anything, it's tough when you start the fight. Like, because he was, like, theatrically squaring up. Oh, yeah. And, like, all right, let's get ready. We're going to throw down here. It's tough when you're that guy, and then you also We've lose. We've all seen the guy at Granville, on Granville Street. Come on now. And when you, and then you lose. Then you get served. So convincingly. That's not a good spot to be in. But can we all acknowledge, though, Ramirez had no idea that he was throwing that punch. Like, it no, was. No, no, it was blind <laughs> luck, for sure. It was sure. blind luck. He was, like, being restrained and just, like, kind of one, one last wild swing, and it connected. Okay. 
when was the last time something like that happened in the MLB? Like like a fight, I mean, of, a you, fight of that yeah, stature. Yeah, Odor and Batista. But was, even was that o- the last one? I was trying to think of something more recent. I'm trying to think of like a clean shot landed. I mean, yeah. that one stands out. But even Odor, like Batista didn't buckle. No, like no. Anderson did. Like that was a good solid he had, shot. He had a Tyson Fury type. Trick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he can. Batista proved that he could take a punch in that one. I don't know. I'm trying to think of the last time. Uh, something like that happened. It might be Bautista. It's it's yeah. it's so much it's wild. It got just got memed into oblivion. It's so much uh, more rare now than yeah. it used to be. Like like fights, charging the mound, anything. We don't see a lot of uh, Nolan Ryan, Robin Ventura no, moments no. Or, anymore. Uh, Pedro and Zimmer. <laughs> yeah, which was that one will never be replicated. Uh, you know, I was thinking about this. <laughs> I was watching this fight, guys, in this brawl. I watched it a couple of times. I was like, why do I love these? And I came to realize it's because they resemble a high school fight nobody really knows what they're doing <laughs> there's just chaos and a bunch of dudes that can't fight and they're just throwing haymakers left right and center and and it goes back maybe it's nostalgic i don't know you know in a high one school guy fight. in the corner just eating curly fries <laughs> trying to mind his own business yeah the guy with acne in the corner eating curly fries yeah. <laughs> exactly chanting fight 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 uh, i will say tim anderson is from alabama so if you've if you've been on social media, you've learned that there are other people in Alabama who can fight much better, <laughs> who can handle their business in a fight much better uh, than Tim. Anderson. Alabama just feeling completely embarrassed right now. If, if you have he not does seen not the represent viral us. Video, go check it out. Yeah, if you haven't seen the viral video, you you don't know what I'm talking about. But uh, Alabama can hold their own in a fight. We learned that. Uh, over this weekend. Uh, all right, we're going to take a break. We do have some other things to get into, including Milos Raonic returning to the tennis courts in Canada. Can he go on a run here? What else to watch for at the National Bank Open? More hockey talk coming up here uh, on Halford & Bruff, Sportsnet 650. Missing the Canucks? Subscribe to the Canucks Central Podcast and get alerts for breaking news episodes. Daily shows return in September. Like a Monday, but it is a big dance Tuesday here on Halford and Bruff. Sportsnet 650, Jamie Dodd, Randy Janda filling in. Halford and Bruff brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Visit your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. We're live from the Kintech studio. 650 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online. At DunbarLumber.com, you can get your What We Learn submissions in early. Hashtag WWL, uh, what you learned. You've got the whole, you've got like even more, 96 hours basically from our last show to work with here. So what you learned in the last 96 hours in sports, hit us up, 650-650. Are you a big, big band guy, Randy? Yeah, huge uh, Artie Shaw and Benny Goodman fan from back in the uh, the 50s and 60s. <laughs> Just picture you nice with a, yeah, yeah. a glass of dud soda. See. First of all, it's good, but okay, we'll allow it. We'll allow it. That's a that's a vibe, though. Some, bi- some big band I, I on, on the speakers. Yeah, a little a little Duke Ellington back in the day. Yeah, people. Okay, the, people always say you're into hip hop or Punjabi music. I yeah. am. Andy, you can appreciate that. that uh, I'm not googling names here. Wow. That yeah, was, no, I was actually impressed that you were able to name not one but two big band artists. There you so go. That was pretty impressive, actually. I have to say. I See? Wasn't, I wasn't expecting that from you. Dud Sorda has uh, many different cultures. It doesn't have <laughs> yes. to be just you know. You, yeah. 
fucking it's a life multifaceted absolutely multifaceted um as i mentioned 650 650 get your submissions in so i mentioned it on the other side uh, you know there's so much that happened around the world of sports we didn't have a chance to get to all of it uh one thing of note last night milos raonic big win in round one uh, of the national bank open in toronto this is really significant for a number of reasons i mean Right off the bat, he beats the the number 10 ranked player in the world in Francis Tiafo in a really kind of epic three-set uh, match. Raonic missed two years on the tour with injury. This is his third appearance since coming back. Came back in June. Uh, so this is only his third tournament that he's played since returning. It's first time playing in Toronto at this event in five years. 2018 was the last time. And look. Great to see him get that result and whatever else happens for him at this event. At least he has that moment in front of the Canadian fans. Great performance, big win over a good player. Raonic was really the first, the first member of what we thought and still could be a kind of golden generation of Canadian tennis. And, you know, he's struggled obviously a lot with injuries in his career in general, but to see him come back get that moment, and who knows? Maybe it could be the start of a really special run for him. Uh, it was really cool, and I think there's going to be a lot of people rooting hard for Raonic to do something special at this tournament this week. And your point about, you know, being in Canada, he's 10 minutes away from his house, like where he grew up in, in Ontario. Yep. So it's, you know, that playing there, having that moment there, whether mm -hmm. it turns into a long run or not, it's awesome to see the guy that, really started he's 32 now which seems like so old compared to some of the players but remember went to Wimbledon final was yep. in the semifinals at the Aussie Open way back in you know 2016 uh, was able to to really raise the bar for Canadian tennis and he played a guy that's informed this year like oh yeah Francis Tiafo. yep he's played as a legit opponent exactly he's ninth in the world right now and on his day can take out some of the best players in the world so Awesome to see. I don't know where it leads, but it does kind of you go back to to the other players of of that golden generation, mm -hmm. kind of, and it's an interesting time in Canadian tennis, right? Like Felix Auger-Aliassime, currently twelfth in the world, maybe not that optimistic doesn't right now. Feel like it though, you know he what doesn't. I mean? Which is not fair necessarily, but like when's the last big moment that Felix had, or it's like big match that he won? It's I can't think of one off the top of my head. But that does speak to the Raonic experience in a certain way as well there. You talked about the injuries, but the timing in which Raonic came up, it was the best players yep. out there. And even when his game was on, it was tough to take out Nadal, Federer, and Djokovic. Oh, right? Yeah. Where right now with Felix, is there's a lot of unforced errors in his game. He's 23. There's still time to turn it around and, and get back in the top 10 and all of that. But you don't have to look too far. Like Bianca Andreescu, mm -hmm. injuries, mm -hmm. ranked 44th in the world. Leila Annie Fernandez, injuries, ranked 88th in the world. Yeah. It, it's to have that success when you're young in tennis. Emma Raducanu is ranked 133rd yes, in the world. after winning the U.S. Open. So there's yeah. no guarantees, right? So <laughs> even though you have a golden generation, you never know if you're going to get to the top of the mountain because the level of tennis across the planet right now some really good players on both sides. Yeah, it's been frustrating to see because it felt like it felt like the Andrescu U.S. Open was going to be the start of a really, really special time for Canadian tennis. And I, I would almost compare it a little bit to what we're seeing with the men's soccer team right now, right? What we've seen since they qualified for the World Cup is you think it's going to be 
just an upward trajectory, right? Like this is just a stop on the way to the summit, on the way to being consistently excellent. But the competition in these sports around the world is so intense that it's incredibly hard just to maintain your position there, let alone, uh, you know, keep improving it. And this week is always interesting because unless a Canadian goes on a run at a major, this is probably the most attention tennis gets all year in Canada, right? This event in Toronto and Montreal, the kind of the, the Canadian stop uh, on the tour. And, you know, there's always this hope that, that one of the potential bright young stars will be able to use this as a, a kind of jumping off point. Remember, Bianca won this tournament right. right before she won the U.S. Open uh, in 2019. You know, you mentioned Felix ranked 12th. The frustrating thing with him is that it feels like, well, he did get passed by guys even younger than him, right? Yeah. And obviously Alcaraz, now he might be a phenom, so maybe it's a little unfair. Essentially, it feels like the second coming of Rafa Nadal. Yeah, right? exactly. Maybe a little unfair, but in a way you almost feel like his moment was missed a little bit to kind of solidify himself in that next generation of uh, of stars on the men's side. The ones I'm watching really closely are Bianca Andreescu and Leila Annie Fernandez. Andreescu's the one who actually broke through and won a major, right? Fernandez made it to the final of the of a U.S. Open. That's really significant, and they still have that talent in their game. If I was, you know, the two I'm going to be, they're they're the two I'm going to be keeping a close eye. Can they use this tournament to jumpstart their seasons to kind of get their games back on track? And the ATP versus the WTA right now is, I think, the WTA is a lot more open. Where tournament to tournament, your Shviatek is is a damn good player. Like she is. She's dominant, yeah. but there is a little bit more of a path to win a title on the women's side, whereas I think on the men's side right now, you've got a saturation of high-end yeah. talent where whether it's a Zverev or a Sissy Pass, or yeah. like there's Tier 1 yeah. and then there's Tier 2, and Tier 2 is well, stacked yeah, too. Djokovic still doing it yeah. and Alcaraz yeah, breaking like that's through. That's Tier 1. Yeah. Those guys are at the top of the game, and then yeah. you get into you know the Zverev, Sissy Pass. You can throw Tiafo in that conversation. Felix is in that. And the guy we haven't mentioned, Denis Shapovalov, He's actually ranked 22nd in the world, yeah. which we forget. But it's been so long since he's, you know, you know, you got to say irrelevant at the mm-hmm. the men's game internationally. That this summer, and I, I look at the event actually here in Vancouver, the Labor Cup coming up in late September, mm-hmm. as a maybe a bit of a reminder to Canadian tennis fans that, all right, you've got some high end talent, but at the same time, like Chapeau's going to be there. This is a you have the majors where they you can remind people that, okay, you're still around, you're, you can maybe make a run, but I think the Labor Cup will also be another opportunity where it's going to be in Canada and you're going to get that much more, I, I think, uh, eyes on the product. Oh, yeah. Especially with, you know, some high-end players coming from the team uh, on the other side as well, uh, from Team Europe. So we'll see. We'll see what happens in National Bank Open first. But is this a time where one of these players, and I, I would look at the women's side too because I think it's a little bit more wide open right now than the men's side where there's just a saturation of like a lot, a lot of high-quality players. Yeah. And breaking through and beating Djokovic or uh, Alcaraz, good luck. <laughs> it's, you know, they're running show right now. Uh, yeah. So that's uh, – it's just – it's been kind of a weird stretch since, since Bianca won the U.S. Open. It's been an odd stretch for – uh, Canada tennis. Great to see Raonic back, and I hope some of the younger players uh, can jumpstart their seasons as well at this event. Uh, Carolyn Cameron, by the way, from Sports, that's going to join us tomorrow to dig in more uh, to the uh, the National Bank Open. Um, before we get back into the uh, the hockey conversation, one other thing I did 
want to mention is the uh, the U.S. women's soccer team lost early in the first knockout stage, the round of 16, to Sweden in penalties by basically the thinnest margin possible. If you saw uh, the uh, <laughs> the VAR review uh, of the winning goal, um, they lose in the World Cup very, very early, much more early than they're accustomed to. Obviously, Brazil, Germany, Canada, as we know, top 10 teams that went out in the group stage, one of the early themes, now it hasn't been universal, right? I know we saw France wax Morocco to move on uh, this morning, but one of the themes of this World Cup has been there's actually the, the traditional powers can't rest on their laurels anymore. There are more teams coming. There are more teams that can be competitive that can win games uh, against even the really good teams or at least get results. With the U.S. Women's team, women's team specifically, they've been synonymous with women's soccer, and they have been very much the foil for everyone else and kind of, I don't want to say the villain necessarily, but the big bad that everyone has to take down. Is it good for the sport that they're out early, that it is a sign that there's more depth of field, that there's more legit competition? Or does women's soccer need them around to kind of, as I say, be that foil, be that that big bad that everyone else is trying to take down? I think it's a good thing for soccer and women's soccer specifically that the United States has bounced out of this tournament, right? Look, they've had a a strong, strong run. If you look at all the World Cup finals going back to 1991, oh, yeah. they've been involved with, I think, six finals, if I'm not mistaken, five or six finals, which tells you that, yeah, they are the bad guy on the international stage. And that's good. They've got, you know, they play with swagger. They've got some attitude over the years as well. And that happens when you win. But now you start looking at some of the teams that made it, you know, far Morocco, mm-hmm. uh, Jamaica, mm-hmm. you start looking at other teams like Colombia that has made it to the next round too, which remember, it's not only the United States, but Martin Brazil knocked out. Yep. Colombia is now taking the South American spot there to say, Hey, we're in this. So I like the fact that there is some parody here. Remember one of the things we used to talk about earlier on was maybe two or three world cups ago was it felt like it was essentially the United States and maybe Japan and Japan won that one world cup. Yep. And what happened here in Vancouver at BC Place? The United States absolutely annihilated Japan 5-2, and that wasn't much of a a competitive match at all. Now you fast forward, and you've got actually some parity here. You know, Germany and Sweden, and I know, you know, some of these European teams didn't have a great uh, group stage, but, like, France is looking extremely strong. Sweden is back after making the World Cup final back in 2003. They're they're looking strong enough. Um, I actually like this. I think this is something that... When we look at women's hockey at the international stage, we wish there was more depth of field, Yeah. right? We wish that, hey, we love the U.S.-Canada rivalry, but sometimes you're just like, man, I wish there were two or three more teams that could could really push it. You're starting to see that in women's soccer now. Yeah, and I mean, I think ultimately it is a good thing, right, to have more teams that are legitimate threats. And who knows? I mean, maybe this will be... Maybe this will be the kind of spark that the U.S. team needs to push to even greater heights, right? And that can push the sport forward in a way. I think of uh, Team USA men's basketball losing at the Olympics, and what did they do? They went back to the drawing board and said, okay, we got to think. We got to completely redo this. The and they've been, team. They've yeah. been dominant since yep. then, right? Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen with women's soccer for the U.S., but sometimes that kind of jolt of a loss can push a program to new heights, too. And one thing we do have to acknowledge here is that the women's leagues in Europe are next level right yeah. now. So when you have teams like Manchester City, Arsenal, Chelsea, go through the, you know, the French league is great with this as well. They're investing some serious money into these leagues. 
And what do you do in that case? You, you, you know, you fan out internationally to recruit the best players on mm. the planet. So Blaney Shaw, for instance, who plays for Jamaica, she plays at Man City. And she's being trained amongst the best players on the planet, men or women. And that actually goes back to the national program. So now you're seeing a lot of these leagues feeding back into player development, and it's benefiting the international teams too. So this is kind of the globalization that the women's game is happening in front of our eyes. We saw it maybe the last 20 years in the men's game. Now with the investment in the women's game, especially in Europe, those strong domestic leagues, you're seeing it kind of filter down to the national level. Uh, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. It is Halford and Bruff here on Sportsnet 650 with Jamie Dodd and Randy Janda filling in. So we were talking a little bit about it. The big deal in the NHL, obviously, Eric Carlson, the nor- the reigning Norris Trophy winner, 100-point season from the blue line. He joins Sidney Crosby, Gino Malkin, and Chris Letang in Pittsburgh. Now, we were talking about it. I, I think this is a big win. I think this is exactly the type of move that Kyle Dubas should be trying to make, correcting, very explicitly almost, correcting some of the mistakes in Michael Granlund and Jan Ruda and Jeff Petrie of the uh, of the Ron Hextall era in Pittsburgh. Now, having said that, I don't think this makes them a top five cup contender necessarily. And as you were pointing out, you know, this they still have a very difficult uh, division or at least probably two teams in their division in Carolina and New Jersey that you would slot ahead of them. So, I, from a philosophical standpoint, I absolutely think this is what they should be doing, right? Finding those superstar talents that they can slot alongside their core, finding players that will raise the ceiling, hopefully to a Stanley Cup level. I guess the question then is in practice, though, where do they actually stand in the hierarchy of the Metro Division in the in the Eastern Conference as well? Does like To me, this solidifies them as a playoff team. I will be picking them to make the playoffs. I don't know if I'll be picking them to go on a deep run necessarily in the playoffs once they get there though they have a much better chance of at least i would say you can now consider a stanley cup for Sidney crosby uh to close his career close it's a possibility it's a possibility they put themselves in that position in in it where it's at least theoretically possible at least and we've seen how over 82 games are they a playoff team to your point yeah if i'm the new york rangers i'm a little worried now because Mm -hmm. now you've got some serious competition probably for you know, the third spot in that Metro yeah, Division. The Islanders, who snuck in as a wildcard team, or as well. Like, I'd be very, very concerned. If uh, yeah, if I'm Islanders. Lou Lamorello, I'm, I don't know if he's on a lifetime contract. Or I don't know if uh, – yeah, I'm worried if I'm if I'm Lou. I don't think Lou gets worried about I, mean, I was going to say, I don't know what Lou's thought process is. Nobody knows. But, <laughs> like, Washington, if you're trying to do a quick reset for yeah. this year, trying to get that final wild card or maybe uh, the third in the Metro. Columbus trying to be on the come up, right? And like, hey, this is the year. We're yeah, going to do no, it. It's going to be a lot more difficult, especially if you're trying to get that third spot in the Metro. So, I think to have your name, you know, in the hat, so to speak – to, to have, be one of the 16 teams in the playoffs, for sure, they're, they've got themselves an opportunity to do something. Now, here's a problem. When you have that much money tied up into certain players, and listen, I'm not disagree. Like, I agree that those are the right moves. Carlson, mm-hmm. he's the best defenseman, at least the best scoring defenseman in the NHL last year, uh, depending on what you think of the Norris Trophy and what it means right now. Mm-hmm. But you still have got some really solid players. But I look at this team... And to me, the Achilles heel is goaltending. Yeah. They haven't improved that. And you can talk about defense with Ryan Graves. You can talk about depth scoring with Riley Smith. Uh, down the middle, they've got that hard skill in Lars Eller. Uh, Noel Achari brings that too. But 
it's the same conversation that we've had the last two years of if they make the playoffs, if they make the playoffs, do they have the guy between the pipes yeah. to to win a series, to save a series, to not be the scapegoat? And Eric Carlson's going to help them from creating chances. He's going to, you know, help them control the puck. He's going to be that guy that when he's on the ice, you're probably not going to be in the negative when it comes to scoring chances no. or, you know, shots for. Is he going to make the occasional mistake? Yeah, sure. Yep. But we see that in Vancouver with Quinn Hughes as well. That, sure, defensively, maybe not, <clears throat> excuse me, out of a, a hundred, you know, not an A+, plus, but when he's on the ice, are you going to get the majority of chances? For sure you are. Well, and even in San Jose last year, at 5-on-5, five five, they were exactly even with Eric Carlson on the ice. Now, you can look at that and say, well, that's very underwhelming. Why are you paying so much for a guy who just broke even at 5-on-5? Five five? But look at what happened in San Jose when Eric Carlson was off the ice. They got obliterated. Yep. They were w- super in the negative at 5-on-5. Five five. So the fact that he was able to basically single-handedly turn a really dreadful team into a break-even team, that's what I'm counting on is that in Pittsburgh, which is a decent team already, which easily could have made the playoffs, and I think if they weren't basically in revolt at their management, probably would have made the playoffs yep. last year in Pittsburgh. He's not just going to be breaking even, right? He's in a position where, again, I think he can he can raise the ceiling of that team, and they're going to have really good results when he's on the ice. And I will say, you know, okay, you've got New Jersey and Carolina that you still like ahead of them. But I look at the Eastern Conference as a whole, and even look at the other division in the Atlantic. Boston, huge questions with missing, oh, yeah. missing Bergeron and Krejci. Like, you've got mega, mega Zaka questions and there. Charlie Cole as your yeah. top two centers right now. You know, Tampa... I don't look at them as the Tampa of old. The depth has taken a hit. Their age is starting to catch up to them. They're still a really good team, but I don't think it's a lock that if they were to meet, you know, if it was Tampa versus Pittsburgh in a playoff series, I think Pittsburgh would have every chance to to knock them off. The Leafs, I have questions about their blue line, despite some of the moves they've made. So I do think there's an opening in the Eastern Conference. And again, maybe Pittsburgh's not a, a top three team in the East, but I think the drop-off from... You know, the, that middle tier, right, after probably Carolina and New Jersey, that next – and you can throw Florida in there if you want. But that next group of teams, I don't think there's a lot to choose between them in the Eastern Conference. So I think for Pittsburgh, as you said, it's going to come down to goaltending, health, all of those things in the playoffs, but they've given themselves a shot to be the team that comes out of the Eastern Conference. Their forward depth and now their defensive depth will keep them in that conversation. Uh, one area that they're going to have to watch out for, and that $3 million that they freed up, mm-hmm. is can they replace a Jake Gensel until he comes back from injury? Yep. That's going to be a big part, right? Can they get somebody that can play a top six role alongside Sidney Crosby, and that will score goals? The other thing I have, you know, in terms of a question is, when you start looking at, you know, across the league here, and I think with Eric Carlson last year, you brought up the stats. One question I had about his game last year, and you know, covering a lot of the Canucks games against San Jose yep. and watching some San Jose throughout the year, was when in doubt, get the puck to Eric Carlson. Like they didn't have much of a strategy other than it's his puck, mm-hmm. let him do what he wants to do with it. In Pittsburgh, it's not going to be that necessary. No, he's going to have to play within a system for he's sure. He's going to have to play within a system. He's going to have to, you know, be off the puck a lot. Sidney Crosby yep. likes the puck on his stick. Geno Malkin likes the puck on his stick. There's other players that do want the puck, right? And Eric Carlson's not going to have that that same flexibility, that same, you know, free reign, essentially, which is totally understandable. San Jose had nothing else, but how does he play within that? Because it's been a couple of years since, you know, he's played on a good team, let's yeah. be honest. But I will say, he 
want he helped like he had a new move clause right and he helped call his shot to where he want, wanted to go so he's motivated to go there and if you are going to and I, like Eric Carlson wasn't playing that way because he has a bad attitude right he was playing that way because of the circumstances yeah, they in San needed Jose. him to play that basically way basically yeah. it was like well we're not going to generate anything else so you go do your thing i think going to a contender playing with Sidney Crosby playing under Mike Sullivan, right? Like these are the perfect circumstances you would want to take somebody like Eric Carlson, who's used to more of a freelance role and get them to buy into whatever your system is, right? Like Sidney Crosby, he's going to be able to get veteran players to buy into what Pittsburgh is doing. That's his role. That's his job. And there are total benefits to this on the other side too, because when's the last time we've seen Sidney Crosby or Gino Malkin, you know, get hit with passes up the middle outlet. Like, you know, we've seen that home run ability, of Eric oh, Carlson yeah. to hit what Mike Hoffman on that yep. famous goal way back when, I believe it was 2016. We haven't really seen Crosby and Malkin play with those level of players consistently enough. Chris Letang does that to a certain degree, but we know Carlson's, you know, a level above that. Yeah. Uh, we'll get into Major League Baseball and the playoff races a little bit. Adnan Burke from MLB Network joins us next. More hockey talk coming up later in the show. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. It is Halford and Brough. Here on Sportsnet 650.